0: Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher, who's our managing editor. Hi, Eric. Today we're speaking with novelist Ivy Pakoda, author of the recent book Wonder Valley, and Galt Niederhofer, author of the recent book Poison. I really enjoyed Galt's book, mostly for the ways that it asks questions about how we feel in intimate relationships when we're worried that that other person, beyond just loving us, might actually also kill us.
1: Yeah, that is a particular kind of relationship, I think. But the broader subject of gaslighting, of somehow being convinced that what you know is real is not actually real, seems not only relatable, I think, but in terms of our broader political situation and probably the personal lives of many people, but I thought really also spoke to the, you know, the contemporary conversation with Time's Up, Me Too, and all of the various Mm -hmm. movements that are happening where just the sheer belief in what women are experiencing is consistently under pressure and consistently questioned. And so this experience of knowing one thing, experiencing one thing, and then Sort of having it told back to you as something else. Yeah, or having the
0: world deny the truth that you know.
1: Right. Really seems like an important subject. And it's also, in a sort of a flippant way, also a really fun book to read. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we should also say that both of these are noir novels. And in kind with all noir novels, they're really gripping reads. I mean, they're fun to kind of like what's going to happen, the thriller aspect of them. And Ivy's book doesn't deal as much with the gaslighting, but with this kind of how are these people networked together? How can you see this like seedy underside of Los Angeles and Southern California and how it connects these various nefarious characters? So it is actually a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Eric, personally, have you ever been gaslit?
0: I feel that I am gaslit in a very benign way by my husband on almost a daily basis. (laughs) So we often have this thing where when we have kind of key catchphrases or puns or jokes, he will oftentimes claim, and he would actually gaslight me in front of you by being like, oh, yeah, I was the one that came up with that. And then I'll say, no, I remember exactly when I came up with that pun. And then he'll say, well, are you sure? Because you don't always have the best memory. <laughs> so, oh, wow. so that's a kind of like everyday gaslighting, but playful and benign, like I said. It's not nearly the kind of gaslighting that, that you're talking about or that is the subject of Galt's novel. But gaslighting nonetheless, and incredibly frustrating.
1: Very true. I think next time we should have Dan Lopez back on the show and really confront him about which puns he actually did steal and which puns he made up himself.
0: Exactly. Well, you'll never get the truth from him. And, And I've now been convinced I don't even know the truth.
1: Well, let's talk to Galt and Ivy and figure this Dan situation out later.
0: Sounds good. studio we have Ivy Pocota and Galt Niederhofer. Ivy is the author of three books, the most recent of which is Wonder Valley, published by Echo this past November. Galt is a producer, director, and writer who has worked on more than 30 feature films, including 2005's Lonesome Jim and 2010's The Kids Are Alright. Her latest novel is Poison, published by St. Martin's Press and also in November. Welcome to the show, Ivy and Galt. Thank you. Okay, so I took a stab at summarizing these very complicated narratives that you guys have both written in your latest novels. And I've got it this way. So Galt's novel, Poison, is about a woman who begins to suspect that her husband is literally trying to kill her, something that we all think about our spouses at one point or another, but it gets literalized here. Ivy's novel is a noir thriller that sweeps across SoCal scenes. There's things like a hippie commune, the desert, elsewhere, the freeways. And with an array of characters that all are connected to a naked man running down the 101 freeway. Does that sound about right? Have I left anything out? I don't want to give too much away, which was really hard with these descriptions.
2: That was spoiler free. Okay, good.
0: (laughs) Let's start with, since both of these are kind of noir or thrillers, what do you find appealing about that genre? And what's difficult about working in it?
3: For me, it's never a conscious decision to write anything dark or noir. It's just something that emerges when the subject matter occurs to me. Uh, I think if I was charged with writing a noir novel, I'd fail miserably. (laughs) (laughs) I think that sometimes the settings that I'm attracted to writing happen to be in the shadows or in, you know, darkness or especially California where there's such a strange balance between light and dark. Mm. It creates these sort of extended shadows, which is why California has this sort of pretty close association with the noir genre. So I don't think it's for me a conscious decision. It's just one that sort of, you know, comes out as I progress through a story.
1: Okay, That was Ivy just for our listeners who (laughs) might not
2: know your voices quite yet. I would agree. Agree. In writing this book, form followed function, I walked into the thriller genre totally blind, having never written in in it before, nor read that much of it. And um, learning more about it, it became this awesome challenge to try to play with the hallmarks of the genre and to meet the requirements while also kind of doing something original. Gold, I mean,
1: this is also a maybe a personal question you don't have to talk about this of course if you would prefer not to but you also sort of when you said walked into it it made me think of the very real life aspect of this story and that you actually did maybe walk into the thriller it also struck me as a particularly difficult thing to do to write something skillfully and in a genre too when it comes so much from perhaps your own life And I was wondering, was that a part of it as well? You know, thinking, how do I turn my own story
2: into something that is also a novel? Writers are lucky. We have this double interest in the world, first as participants in it, and then as observers, and a prurient interest in it as storytellers. So I think a lot of writers would talk about that as a, blessing, a gift, actually, to yourself. (laughs) Mm. It's true, I had an experience that was depicted in the press in a very sensational and often false way. And the story that that told was one of false allegation, a reporter of a crime charged with her own. And the dramatic irony of that... (laughs) was for a writer, it's like too much to bear. Yeah, it's almost it's, unbelievable. Yeah. It is unbelievable. When a writer walks into or is privy to a story or overhears a story like that, it's like a jackpot with cherries going. <laughs> like, you're, yeah. you're simultaneously amazed by the story and compelled to write it. So what was in reality for me a very, very horrifying time, I was able to transform into this work of fiction. You know, an e-writer will speak, will talk kind of insufferably about the inextricable relationship between truth and the imagination and what is a novel. Mm. But for me, writing this book was a way of making sense of an inexplicable situation and telling an incredible story that I myself couldn't believe. I want to
0: ask a little bit about... Because on the one hand, well... The novel is kind of your response also to or a working through, as you're saying, of like something that that happened to you. There is something both like deeply personal, but also deeply universal about the kind of I'm not exactly sure the word to use, but it's like an intimate violence or like the violence that can attend intimacy that I find particularly gripping. There's a, a scene in the beginning of the book in which the married couple is engaged in kind of. Uh, relatively rough sex but not terribly outlandish and then they kind of have this, like, that's the offstage moment. And then they go stage when they're kind of, oh, this is our regular life. Here are our kids, blah, 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 blah. And I love that distinction between one's private life and the way that certain kinds of emotional or affective intensities get worked out. And then you have the more public life of you outside of that relationship, like in your relationship with everyone else in the family and then in the world. How did you... On the one hand, those are universal themes, right? Like how we deal with our private selves and then our public selves. Do you think that the appeal of this story lies partly in that universality of a thing that maybe we all suspect? Maybe I'm revealing too much about my own relationship and our (laughs) deep competitiveness with one another, but I am fascinated by the idea that it's like I of course, have thought about, like, what if my husband tried to kill me? What if he was trying to gaslight me or these kind of things, right? And I think that's something that everybody deals with at some point.
2: I'm glad it resonated. I think the whole culture is (laughs) grappling with gaslighting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And what is truth? What is fiction? Yeah.
2: And if you look at every conversation as a competition between perspectives, he said, she said, mm. he said, he said, liberals, Republicans, you know, our president, fake news, fact. Right. It's easy to see where the, the confusion they're in. <laughs> and in a relationship, there's no place more private and more confusing than a couple's bedroom in which that kind of competition of perspectives conversation can take place. So when one of those parties is maliciously misrepresenting truth, you have a different dynamic than a simple competition between perspective. And I was fascinated by the the system of that. The way that gets played out. It's actually very uniform. Ivy actually when Eric was
1: asking that question, something that occurred to me is that the opening scene of your novel Sort of strikes a similar balance where you have a naked man this is so this is no spoiler also. this is right at the very beginning, a naked man running down the highway and we have this pairing of the intimate where usually a naked person is confined to their bedroom or to some not the highway, one would say. and then people are also filming it on their phones. They're, everybody's looking. it's it's this really public and also widely a shared event and it occurred to me that the, your book really starts with that with grappling between those things and sort of goes from there is there a way in which well for one it's also a very LA scene and so the way that Los Angeles plays in that dynamic between the private and the public but why you started there why was that the opening shot sort of
3: well, for several reasons. First of all, I was deeply influenced by Don DeLillo's opening to Underworld, Pathco at the Wall, oh. in which he uses the famous shot heard around the world in the pennant playoffs between the New York Giants and the Dodgers to telescope all of the world's anxiety into a single anxiety. So Hoover and Frank Sinatra are in the stands. And there's a young black kid. And there's a white guy who's taking the day off from work. And all these different like racial, social, and nuclear tensions are all you know represented in the baseball stadium, but we're only really looking at a ball game. So I wanted to do my best to rip off Don DeLillo. <laughs> and, um, and I wanted to f- write something that would draw the attention of all of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I've lived here for nine years now, eight years now, and I am so baffled by how many people in Los Angeles pay attention to the morning news and local news and possibly because we're all in our cars or, you know, right. the local news is like a big deal here. And, you know, The news is the moment where everyone, they're listening to the traffic report and they're all paying attention to the same thing at the same time. So I thought if I could create an event which sort of drew the entire attention of the city for a few minutes that everyone could talk about at some point. Because you see this, you know, I was just at my gym and the news was on and everyone's talking about this particular, not all the mudslides in Santa Barbara, but this particular one. So there's this sort of like universality to news events Mm -hmm. that, and, you know, they don't discriminate. And traffic certainly doesn't discriminate. Everyone has to commute. So I thought of a naked runner as a spectacle that might draw people's attention and sort of, you know, freeze a moment in time where everyone is sort of distracted by the exact same thing.
0: I also wanted to ask you, Ivy, about the word that occurs to me when I think about your novel and the type of thriller that it is is how densely networked it is, right? Which is that, like, all of these characters, the big reveal is how they're all related. And that's one of the real pleasures, I think, of reading the book is, like, kind of—I mean, I had read press materials before, so I knew that they were all kind of linked. But I was like, oh, my God, how is this—how are these circles going to be made whole? And I'm wondering, what is that like as— a writing process in terms of like, do you start with knowing how they're all connected or do you have a few threads and then you work them together or are you really invested in, say, like one storyline and then that
3: ends up networking out other stories? It's a great question because it's a horrible way to write a book. Um, It's just (laughs) the only way I know how. I never have an idea of a plot. I just have this sort of idea of these characters or a setting. And I think it has something to do with, I went to graduate school in a low residency MFA program, and you had to submit a packet of writing every month. So I was writing a novel, for better or for worse. And at the end of each month, I had Mm. no idea what I'd do next. So I'd pivot to another character, and then I'd pivot to another character. At the end of six months, I had you know maybe four chapters of different characters and two of that repeated or something and I was like, How am I gonna link these people together? So I did it once before and with Wonder Valley it was incredibly difficult. But then there is this moment where suddenly you realize that there's a reason that you're writing this and that there is something you're obsessed with and suddenly I realized that every character I'd created had made a mistake in their past or his mm. or her past. And you relatable. Know, I, yeah, I exactly <laughs> that was the theme. One should never sit down and write, oh, I'm gonna write a theme book but you know, it did have a theme and that's a good thing. And then I have these like fantasies about how people would connect. And there's sort of like, I love those kind of books that have that weird connect. Like Kate Atkinson does it really well in When Will There Be Good News, I think. Just where the there's these stories and you can't quite figure out how they're gonna connect, but you just see that there's a, we keep saying the word universality, but a universality or like a, a refrain going through the way she's portraying characters. And so I hope that I'm doing that as I'm writing. And then there is this moment that I'm lucky enough to have had my last two books where I'm like, oh, my God, that's it. Like, that is how they connect. And it takes, like, two years to get there, which is why I don't suggest this to anyone. <laughs> but, like, it's such a relief. How I mean, it's you...
1: the one moment of joy in writing, I, Exactly. Right? <laughs> where the rest is pure torture, and you can't really explain that to anybody who's oh, never done it. I know. Where you have at least that two seconds where it's bliss, and you're like, this finally makes sense
3: i remember reading this interview with jennifer egan when she said that and i just simply don't believe this story but because she's super cool i can't imagine she'd lie that she when she finally figured out like what was going to happen in goon squad she went for a run that was so long she forgot to pick her kids up from school and i'm like i want that moment so badly
1: (laughs) that's what i want it's total joy and everything is horror yeah right yeah Yeah. i know
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with novelists Ivy Pacoda and Galt Niederhofer. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation from Dan Lopez.
1: We have Dan Lopez in the studio with us today to give us a book recommendation. Dan is a local author. He is the author of Show House, out from Unnamed Press right now. Dan, what book will you be recommending? Thanks for having me back,
4: Daya. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Today, I want to recommend Sadness is a White Bird by Moriel Rothman Zecker. It's a novel that comes out in February, and I'm super excited about it. I got a galley of it a few weeks ago, and I read it in about two days. I sped through it. It's the story of this guy, Jonathan who likes to pronounce his name Jonathan. <laughs> okay. um, he's a Dyed-in-the-Wool Zionist, Israeli American. His family moves back to Israel in high school, and he's really gung-ho to join the military. His family suffered in the Holocaust, and he's really committed to the project. He's also becomes friends with these twin Palestinians, a woman named Nimran and a boy named Laith. And he kind of is in love with both of them. He's kind of really good friends with both of them. And so the whole book is this kind of struggle between he wants to defend Israel and he believes in the project, but he also can't dismiss the suffering that his friends are enduring. And that comes out throughout the book. And so there's ultimately a grand climax that kind of forces the moment to its crisis. And it's just stunning to read and beautiful. And you walk away without an easy solution to my favorite kind of novel. Like, you can't just say, this side's right, that side's right.
1: That sounds great. Who is the author of that book again?
4: The author is Moriel Rothman Zecker, and the title of the book is Sadness is a White Bird.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. That sounds wonderful.
4: Thank you.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Ivy Pakoda and Galt Niederhelfer. everybody has a different response to it. One is that everybody seems to universally agree that writing itself is horrible. Why would anyone do it, right? But having written is great. That's always like having gotten the like paragraph or the sketch or whatever that you really wanted is like that nothing like you're saying day, nothing feels like that. But I do think different writers have different strategies for getting through the middle part. So like how do you especially in a novel where you're like as you're describing the process you don't really know where it's going? Like, how did you just keep pushing at it until you get to the moment? Because that's what stops, I think, ninety-five percent of novels that don't get pu- that don't end up going anywhere. Is just you lose the ability to keep pushing.
3: I think you're going to hate the response to this question, but um, I hate this is, no response Okay, this is the only thing I tell anyone that I teach writing or who I went to uh, writing school with. It's like you just have to believe it's going to become a book. Like everyone mm. asks me how, I'm get, how I got my book published. And I was like, I just believed it was going to be a book. Because at the end of the day, like, why would you sit there and write? And I think this is a symptom, especially of female writers. I see this all the time with my students and my st- and, and my um, classmates. It's like, oh, I wrote this, but I don't feel like showing it to anybody. It's like, mm. that's like a real problem. You know, like, why Mm -hmm. are you undertaking this? Why have you spent so much time developing your voice and, you know, developing these characters? And the way I get through the middle is just this blind faith that I don't care if critics hate it. I don't care if anyone hates it, but I believe it's going to be a book. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like anything. You have to sort of, you know, I played professional sports. like You have to believe you can win or you're sort of like, there's no point. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Galt, how do you, as a woman who does many different kinds of creative projects, How do you relate your other work to your writing or alternately get through the middle of, let's say, a movie that doesn't seem like it's ever going to actually exist?
2: I take a different approach in that I outline obsessively before Mm. I start writing. And I'm obsessive about plot and the shape of it and that cracking of the, you know, the the mystery is I have to do it before I can start and it's maddening and ultimately the the best feeling in the world when you feel like you've you finally cracked it yeah once I start writing I approach it like I approach parenting and like I approach you know you know Ivy and I actually played sports together oh you did on a team in college i've used a much much better athlete and player than i am but if we we share this kind of dogged discipline i think and i approach my writing with with that and um i just sit down force myself to sit there for two to four hours get it done oh and it and it usually sucks (laughs) um the writing that is but I agree with you that there's there are not many better feelings than seeing those parents. than
0: having done it
3: right, yeah, yeah or it, pulled yeah. it off.
2: So you guys know each other from college. We actually know each other from
3: middle school or high school. I think really? I met. I think I met you when I was in eighth grade. Are you serious? <laughs> yep, at um at a tournament at Choate.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you play each other? Yeah, Ivy was much better than. I. So this was in squash, she, Ivy, because you were a professional. She or- kicked. Serious. Touch. <laughs> um, either met. So we were, we at- wouldn't have played one another, yeah. but we would have been playing at the same tournament.
1: Oh. And then.
2: Then we played on the same team in college. Yeah, we did play on the same team.
1: So Ivy, you remember Galt in eighth grade at a. At a tournament at Choate?
3: Yes, or at the Downtown Athletic Club. I remember that really clearly where it was really cold. Remember? Oh, I remember yeah. that. Place.
1: That's crazy. Yeah. Were you like, that oh, that's the girl weird, that is not place. as good as I am? <laughs> well, Galt stood out because she went to boarding school and played in the tournaments,
3: and that was sort of rare. Most of the kids who competed didn't go to boarding school, so you came from,
2: you know. Sorry. Um, and Ivy stood out because she was like, she was winning tournaments at the age of 12.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. How did you start paying, playing squash? You should read her piece in the
2: Times. <laughs> really my, uh, awesome.
3: A friend of my uh, family's parents got divorced and his, the father came to live with us and needed a squash partner. So he roped my parents into joining this kind of country club in, in Brooklyn. And the um, aftermath was I got stuck there playing squash. Um, when my parents had very,
1: very little to do with it. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say and then he roped in a ten year old and No, that, this guy like disappeared,
3: started. you know, after he made us join the Heights Casino. I have to say, I'm always on
0: the treadmill right in front of the squash courts when I'm at the gym and squash has to be one of the most terrifying games that I've ever seen played. I, can't, I, really... I used to play handball with my dad when I was younger <laughs> and that I don't have the calluses anymore to prove it. But like we used to play handball every once in a while. And th- th- that at least you could kind of control how fast it was going. I think when you add a racket to that and just not knowing how it's going to bat, well, maybe that's why you're the handball athlete hurts. and I'm not.
3: Handball hurt. Two amateur players. Players playing squash is pretty terrifying. It's can terrifying. Be dangerous. <laughs> it can be dangerous. Okay, so when you have
0: professionals playing it are more it's like a trained little safer, people, it's a little just, safer. You, know, you can anticipate yeah. where that ball is going. Yeah, anyone who's
3: taken a few lessons is pretty good. But, oh, man, I'm always surprised because I coached for a while. You're like, those people, why aren't they dead? <laughs> you, you could wear
2: a helmet, yeah. maybe. But to watch Ivy play and, and other excellent players is, is like a beautiful thing. It's like watching a choreographed dance. Thank you. Oh, Wow
0: just to transition back a little bit to your book, Ivy, I was thinking about it's a definitively Southern California novel, right? Not only, as you were saying, in both its kind of engagement with the history of noir writing about California, right, using that, like, seedy underbelly that attends all the glamour and glitz in the light of L.A. But I wondered, like, what does Southern California signify to you? Like, and what do you find so interesting about it?
3: You know... It- I read something somewhere and I can't remember who said it. And I keep, I've been asked this question several times and I wish I could attribute this to the person who came up with this thought because it's not originally mine. But I like this idea that, you know, we're sort of... At the end of the edge of the continent, and people have this sort of manifest destiny idea that it's so beautiful. There's you know oranges and sunshine and beaches and palm trees, but there's also this idea that things wash up here. Like there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. rolling downhill mm. into California, and it's a place where uh, Southern California in particular people get stuck here okay and it isn't you know i moved here i didn't know anything about los angeles i had been like once and i had this sort of like starry-eyed view of like it was either going to be super hip and i was gonna live in silver lake and have that sort of like super hip lifestyle or it was gonna be like bungalows and palm trees and like convertibles and it's like where's that you know like that is not <laughs> part of my life so i find california very deceptive and um i think you know um, especially when I was moved downtown and you just see all the you know, homelessness and, um, you know, mental health issues, mm-hmm. that, you know, there is this sense that people really do get stuck here and that it is kind of a trap and that a lot of things that we d- we delude ourselves into thinking about Southern California aren't exactly present in the way that the television or, you know, literature might have us imagine it. Mm.
1: Do you feel stuck?
3: Well, I mean... I. I'm sure my husband won't listen to this, but like, <laughs> no. I mean, we're here because he he works in film and TV. I could live anywhere. I would like like to live in Omaha or something, but you know. Well, so your
0: novel takes place in Portland, Maine, which for a embarrassing portion of the novel I thought was Portland, Oregon. So he's imagining not entirely radically different places, but still pretty different. Some better biscuits in one than the other. So what did you do you have a similar kind of fascination? Does Portland have any kind of similar signification? Not the same as LA, but meaning that it's like a rich like ambiance or environment in which to explore a particular, like um, in your case, like deadly threat? I
2: think the books have Something in common that we were touching on, which is the idea that like coexisting myths, paradise Mm -hmm. with a kind of hell and also goodness with bad, evil. And the idea that we are constantly um, as people just drawn to this two headed, you know, two two faced coin. When, in fact, the characters in in Ivy's novel and the characters in mine as well are good people doing bad things. You Mm -hmm. know, are normal people driven to very abnormal um, extremes. And what happens when you have to kind of shed those myths Mm -hmm. that there is good and evil, that there is perfect and, um, you know, and and and, like, a, okay, this is I'm, I'm imperfect that there's like, um, you know, the people who are on this side of the freeway, and then the ex-cons who were fighting for life and for food in the desert. Mm-hmm. It, it's just mm-hmm. and there and 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 such a close coexistence of these two extremes. you know, it almost like, connotes kind of like a early 1900s newspaper where you had like you know the the homeless and the the tycoon on the same page it's Mm -hmm. like it's it's an America that people want to look away from and I think you could do that and you could say that of the culture at large and also you know of human nature so I, I think that's something that that the two books really have in common as far as what I was looking for in a setting, um, I wanted to look at privilege lost, paradise mm-hmm. lost, mm. and Sorry. the improbable occasion to see your life from the outside in, having lost everything you had days, weeks ago, with, uh, and seeing that f- with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I come here to LA, I've been here, you know, a couple hours today and I have the fresh eyes of a foreigner and I notice it like an anthropologist again. And I I wonder, Ivy, if when you moved here, you, you know, that drew you to observe this culture in that way and to write it down. But um, what I think happens to my character and what I wanted to look at was what happens when the scales fall from your eyes? Mm-hmm. and you can't see goodness and badness as disparate things um and a paradise becomes a hell um when the institutions that you count on for protection and justice um fail or do the opposite um and what what do you make of culture and identity then <laughs> Right. You know, how do you protect yourself? How do you define yourself? How do you how do you look at your old life? Um,
1: well, I think as a as a follow up question, um, I, I wanted to also ask your opinion. And um, and I think this makes sense in terms of what you just said uh, about the sort of facade and um, scales falling from the eyes and that we seem to be, of course, in a moment culturally where. I'm not sure women had the scales on their eyes but it's it seems like maybe uh, a wider uh, there is a, an audience experiencing that right where suddenly people are seeing things that maybe they had not seen before or didn't know about and something that I thought was really interesting about your story was that so much of it is about just the very simple um, act of being believed right which is not which is not usually a complicated thing that we ask from other people when you told me what you had for breakfast, Ivy, I I believed you, and, and that was not a difficult thing for me to do. Um, but that there are these occasions where it feels impossible to get somebody to just believe what you're saying. Um, well, how? So my question is: How are you responding to this moment, both as a as a writer who's telling a story that is very relevant to the to the moment, but also as a woman who's working in the industry? Um, who's a producer, a writer, uh, et cetera, and and you're visiting L.A., so it must be particularly uh, apt for you right now.
2: I'm really glad you asked this question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're playing to my sweet spot. Um, You're preaching to the pulpit here. Um, Belief. It's a funny thing that protected in this country in our First Amendment... And yet, not so much for women um, or for other disenfranchised folk. It's very complicated. It's not good and evil, honest and false, he said, she said. It goes back to this question of of multiple perspectives. But what I found incredibly fascinating and horrifying was the system of a perfect storm, which is the routine discounting of women's credibility, Mm -hmm. followed by the routine exaltation of the male voice. In a courtroom, that means that a man's testimony is believed over a woman's, even in the face of overwhelming proof. Couple that with a police system, cops, and a court system that is loath to prosecute white men whether they are perpetrating crimes against women black men or each other and you have a very very serious problem (laughs) you have a system that is in effect dismissing the reports of violence failing to prosecute the perpetrators of violence and ostensibly condoning violence against women and that is shocking and true (laughs) and Mm -hmm. when you see the justice system up close as i've had the occasion to do in the last couple of years talk about scales falling off your eyes you realize that our justice system it's not very just and maybe there are many people who've realized this and been talking about this for a long time before I have, and I'm so lucky as to have only realized it as it affected my life. But um, it's interesting how belief, after thinking about this a lot, is kind of the pretext to all of this, the cornerstone of it all, which is not to say that testimony should be believed at the expense of proof that any person's testimony should be enough to, you know, breach the Fourth Amendment or elicit a charge, but rather that testimony of all genders and all people should have the same value.
0: That is, I think, a really great note to end on. <laughs> That's, I can't think of a better way to, to close it out. Um, we've been speaking with Ivy Pakoda, author of Wonder Valley, And Galt Niederhofer, author of Poison, both out this past November and available in bookstores now. Thank you both so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.